Amen. Please be seated. Today is the third Sunday in Advent, as you know, and in these four weeks, I am bringing to you four special messages related to Advent and the coming of Christ. There's a key line in a prayer that Jesus prays that I'm using to kind of give us a cue, and that is John 17, 18, where Jesus is praying for the disciples immediately, but then those who would come to faith through the word of the disciples, that's us. He prays for them, for us as well, that we'd be unified and that we would be obedient and that we would cause people to know that Jesus was sent by God. And so Advent's about Jesus coming to us. So hear God's word as I read just one verse from John 17 that's on the outline you have in your bulletin. It says this, Jesus praying to the Father, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come to you in search of your words, encouragement, and direction. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has brought to us. We thank you for the abundant life that is found as your sons and your daughters through Jesus, our Savior. Father, as you sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus has sent us. Help us to know what that means. Help us to do what you have called us to do, not as a way of maintaining our salvation. We know that redemption has been secured by Jesus, but rather cause us to be obedient so that many would come to know Christ as we have come to know him. May this Advent and Christmas season be particularly powerful for each of us, but especially for those who do not know you, that through the testimony of your word, the ministry of your spirit, and the mission of your church, they might be saved. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this one line from this profound prayer of Jesus is our cue for what we've been studying. If Jesus is praying to God the Father about his being sent and then saying, so I send them, we would want to know what it is that we are to do. If we're to do something like Christ does, what is it? And so we analyze Jesus's life and we consider what are the hallmarks of his life that should then be emulated or followed or carried out by his people. He did many things while he was working his earthly ministry. Of course, in week one, we talked about the most important thing that Jesus did is he brought himself. He is the gospel. Faith in Christ is the main reason he comes. He comes to fulfill the work of God on the cross on our behalf. So as we have faith in him and his work, we are right with God. That's the main reason he comes. But as he gives this message and he gives himself, he also does a great many other things that we can see as part of our duty and calling and mission in reaction to what God has done for us. He ministers with extreme compassion and mercy on everybody he meets. Yes, he's giving a message. Yes, he's come to give himself. But he also constantly feels what other people are feeling in their human condition, in their fallenness. He is able to relate with the world, and he is able to meet us there, and he is able to give us health, cure us in an ultimate sense, of course, but he even really reaches out to people who are just dealing with such physical trauma, such emotional pain. We can hardly imagine, except for the fact that we can, that everyone deals with some aspect of the misery of the fall. And having compassion and mercy on people, that's certainly one way in which we present Christ to people the way we fulfill Christ's mission for us. So bringing the gospel, bringing compassion and mercy, 
Jesus brings something else, and that's what we're looking at today. Jesus, when he comes, he is the truth. And so when he comes and is present, the truth necessarily will confront lies, lies that enslave people. As Jesus comes into their presence, those lies are exposed. And so Jesus speaks the truth because he is the truth. And the church should be, as Paul says of us, a buttress and pillar of the truth, upholding the truth, preaching the truth, teaching the truth, living the truth. But I think we can see a progression, even a priority about how the truth should be brought to the world. Oftentimes, you'll see at the, at the bottom of the outline, there are three bullet points. Those are really the summation, or you might say the application of this progression we'll look at in the verses that are listed on your outline. And giving you a, a little bit of a, a preface to that, I think often what happens is the church inverts the priorities that God gives us with regard to bringing the truth. We sometimes approach it from the perspective of morality first. Like, look at all the immorality around us. We need to bring the truth against that. When in reality, I think the way Jesus does it in his earthly ministry is he brings himself and he disciples people and that through the process, he confronts the issues of our lives. So the church can take its cue by realizing that our first priority is to bring Christ. And then we'll see also to be honest about our ongoing need for Christ. When we come to Christ, it's not like we're polished and now we've got it together and the world needs to get it together now too. It's we're still struggling with sin, but we have Christ. And from that perspective, that place of humility and admission and reliance upon Christ, we then can start to confront some of the issues that plague society. We could say, you know, the reason why things aren't going well is we're not following the design of the creator who saved us. And we speak in those terms rather than always in an almost angry way, go after whatever the moral issue is that's presenting first. People start to think the church, we're just about the moral, being the moral police. That's what we do. Well, we're called to bring truth and truth is holistic. It's the whole counsel of God's word. And let's do it in the balance that Jesus shows in his life because he is sending us as he was sent. With that, I have listed for you some verses I want to walk through with you. And these verses show a progression of Jesus' teaching about the truth that I think will help communicate to us our calling, bringing the truth. I'll use the Gospel of John because John 17 is the passage I'm using to really give us a cue. So let's just look at John. We could have gone to any of the Gospels and watched this progression in the words and teaching of Jesus. But let's start at John 8. That's there on your outline. John 8, 12 to 14. Then later I'll look at a couple other verses, but just... By way of preface, when we come to John chapter 8, lots has happened in the ministry of Jesus. Seven chapters before contain Jesus' miracles, like when he changed water to wine, a very public miracle that word must have gotten out concerning. He gave sight to the blind. He fed 5,000 people. He walked on the water. So by John 8, he had a gathering, a crowd that was starting to develop and following him. So his popularity was pretty high among the common people, and it was rising. But with the religious leaders, those who stood to be threatened by someone who's coming and preaching a message of repentance and belief as opposed to dependence and following a system of religiosity, for those people, they didn't like Jesus. And they're already plotting early on, how could we frame this guy? How could we get enough evidence to have him uh, put in jail or killed? We need to get him out of the picture because he's taken away from us and they're Threat, the threat to their power and their influence was really creeping up upon them by John 8, and their tensions are really building by John 8. And we have Jesus now talking in terms of what is true. The Pharisees, they believed they had what, had what was true, and people ought to listen and follow them. And here's Jesus teaching something that's different from what they were teaching. 
It says in John 8, verse 12, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a powerful statement for Jesus to make about himself. I am the light of the world. The Pharisees got exactly what he meant, what he was saying. Verse 13 of John 8, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. We have a truth versus false confrontation here between the Pharisees and Jesus, and it really typifies the whole of their tension. But it's bigger than that. It typifies the whole of the tension on earth. Is Jesus true or not? Because what he says about himself can't be mistaken. It can't be compromised. It's clear what he's saying. It's very clear. Verse 14 of John 8, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. He brings himself into the situation, bears testimony to himself. And in so doing, he confronts the lie of the system the Pharisees were teaching. And you say, well, how does that relate with every other teaching? Well, the Pharisees were teaching basically a system of you do this and you do that, maintain this, and you might have hope to be right with God. That essentially sums up every other religious system there is. So it's either Jesus or everything else. When you bring the truth, it will expose the lie or expose what is really being said on the other side. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what we're to do. We're to bring Christ. We're to declare Christ. And as we explain him, as we declare him and make him known, it will necessarily confront lies that are there. Misthinking. The way people have the wrong idea how we can be right with God. That fundamental level really sets up everything. The Pharisees didn't like his answer at all, as you can tell. Then if you, if you go down to, and you can just listen to this verse, in John 8, 31 and 32, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, because some people, they believe what he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if you abide in Christ and his word that he has given, as you follow it, you will really be made free. Well, wait a minute, I don't feel like I'm a slave, someone might say. Well, the truth is, in sin, apart from Christ, without his word, we're really slaves to our settled failure to keep God's commands. In our sin, there's no freedom. There's really no peace. There's no contentment. We may think we're free, but really we're enslaved to our desires, and those things ultimately always work to hurt, harm, and destroy us. It's not free at all. But in Christ, we're set free now. We're set back to a place where we can start to understand our actual design, our actual calling, what God has made us to do. The only way to be free from sin, death, hell, and the grave is Christ. In Christ, we're alive. We're no longer dead. We're no longer slaves. Well, let's continue the progression. The next passage I have there in front of you is John 14. Now by John 14, lots has changed in the ministry of Jesus. People have dropped off. Uh, Some of his statements have become extreme to them in their minds. They could see why being associated with him could be dangerous. They knew of the tensions between the religious leaders and Jesus. He was doing less miracles at this point and more discourse and teaching. And so now his disciples who have been following him and were somewhat confused as to exactly the full totality of Jesus's mission. Now they're getting anxious because they realize it went from getting popular to now it's not so popular. And now it looks like it's not going to be good for their master. There's no way these religious leaders are going to let him off. They've seen what happened to other people. 
And so they're nervous and they're scared a bit. They don't know what's going to happen with Jesus. And notice what Jesus says to them to give them comfort that helps us understand this progression of Jesus' handling or propagating of the truth. John 14, 1 through 6, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's equating himself with God, saying more that would certainly get him in trouble with the Pharisees. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's trying to calm their spirits, calm their anxieties, their nervousness, their instability over what's happening, their lack of security by saying that I and my Father, you can trust in me, that I'm preparing a place for you, I'm securing you. In verse 4 he says, And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says what certainly most of them were thinking. Lord, in verse 5, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, there is a host of information that not one of us, brothers and sisters, know about tomorrow. There are all sorts of details we cannot be sure of regarding the months and the years to come. We only know a few details even about the life hereafter. They're wonderful details, but they're few if we're honest. But what we know that gives us peace And even excitement about today, tomorrow, and the years to come. And it's the truth we have to bring to a world filled with anxiety. It's what Jesus says in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So whatever will happen tomorrow or the next month or in the life hereafter, what we need to know is by knowing Christ, we can know the Father. And that's the truth that so desperately needs to be upheld. Now, in the first message, it was about bringing the gospel. I spoke to you about the act of talking with folks to express Christ, to show Christ by actions and deeds. Now I'm talking about the church's need, Christians' need, to uphold that message of the truth that it is Christ. And he's the only way we can know the Father. And then from that comes all the other applications of Christ's commands that the church must uphold. But we have to be solid on this point. We have to be very solid that anybody who would ever walk through these doors would be able to piece together what our message is. They may not believe it, but they know what it is. And if someone on the news were to come here two weeks, they'd be able to report and say, you know what this church believes about how you're right with God? They should know this because of how clear it is and how we uphold this truth over and over again. And no matter what happens outside, we continually uphold that truth. Jesus said to him in verse 6, I am the way and the truth in the, in the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, in just a few chapters, the, we come to chapter 17 of John. We have obviously every week been reading verse 18 as our cue, but look at verse 17. I have it there printed on your outline as the next verse. He sends us as he had been sent, but notice what it says in verse 17. It says, as Jesus praise to the father sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world so jesus prays that truth would sanctify his disciples and by extension us to sanctify it means simply to clean up it means in spiritual terms to 
uh, the, the process of maturing spiritually. Now, we're clean positionally before God because he looks at only the righteousness of Christ. But you know, in reality, as far as how we live, our life is a constant work, and it's tough in this life. Between the time we come to Christ, which is justification, and the time we're glorified and go to heaven and are perfected, there's this process that seems long to us. It's not an eternity, but it is for us now, sanctification. It's a process of dying to sin more and more and living more and more to Christ, but it never ends in this life. And, and you have these couple steps forward, a couple steps back, and it's a constant struggle, and we're being sanctified. And the way we're sanctified, the way we're, we're made more like Christ is by his word, which is truth, and it bears witness to the truth, Christ. And so Jesus prays to sanctify them with the truth, in the truth, because your word is truth. And then right after that, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we are to bring the truth because that's the means that God uses to bring people to Christ and to make them more and more like Christ. There's not another method. That's the method he gives by his word. So the church, Christians, we have to uphold truth. Now, this happens on a very personal level as we go to the word and we seek God's direction in our lives and the word gives it to us. When we're together as family members, encouraging one another in the word, when we come together as a church family, presenting the word in various forms and teaching and preaching and speaking and thinking about it, memorizing it, reading it, sharing it, this helps us to become more and more sanctified in the process that God has outlined. But we also bring this in some public dimension by being very vocal about what the word says and and love what the word says and cherish what the word says. Now, let's look at verse 18. As things really hit, you might say, a climax as it relates to the tension against Jesus. He's standing before Pilate now, who's the Roman governor of a very annoying state for him. Pilate did not, it was not a prize to be the governor of the Israeli state in Rome at that time. They were very difficult to govern. And here's Pilate with a very dicey situation. He's trying to get a handle of what this means about this Jesus person who he can't see anything really wrong with. He's trying to give Jesus a chance to say something that would allow him to disfree him, but Jesus isn't giving him anything. And so Pilate, in some frustration, in the text I have there before you, John 18, 37, and Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Hoping he would say, no, not really. It's not like that. They're overdoing it. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Then listen to what Jesus says. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Okay, we've got to say for sure, if Jesus prays that we are to be sent like him, that we are to bear witness to the truth. He was sent into the world to do this, he says. So are we sent into the world to do this. Look what he says next. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So there's a sense in which Jesus acknowledges that you present the truth, bear the truth. Not everyone's going to believe it. That's not the point. But we bring the truth. And those who are of the truth, they will believe it. It really echoes to, or or hearkens to, I should say, uh, in a forward sense, when Paul and and the apostles are preaching to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. And they're presenting the gospel. And Gentiles, for the first time, are seeing how all this Old Testament background that they always thought was just about the Jews as ethnic people really was a forecast of the Abrahamic covenant opening up to the Gentiles. And they were recipients of the grace of God, and they were overwhelmed by the gospel message. It was for them. And they say in Acts 
13:48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So when Jesus says to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, bear the truth. And those who are appointed, those who are of the truth, they'll hear and they'll be changed and they'll be sanctified. But we must bear the truth. We're called to do this. And it eventually has great effect and impact on everyone. As people in the church, as Christians grow in Christ, that only benefits everybody. As we grow in Christ-likeness, this spills out and helps everybody, whether they appreciate us or not. That's what Jesus did everywhere he went. He had that impact, that effect. And, of course, you know the response, or maybe uh, it may surprise you to hear what Pilate says in verse 38 of John 18, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And people will ask that. We need to tell him. Now, Pilate's case, he had become cynical, it seems. At least that's the way I read it. How can you, sir, know what truth? You're going to tell me what truth is right now, Jesus is, or Pilate's thinking about what Jesus just said. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. There's one more passage that I have there listed for you. First Corinthians three, we should know well about the background for Corinthians as we spent over a year in that book have taken just a brief pause for these four messages. But you recall the problem in Corinth was division. The problem was worldliness that had come into the church and they'd no longer look like the church. And so Paul is writing to reconnect them to the gospel, to Christ, their head, to unify them and make them effective again. And look what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11. For we, that is the church, Christians, are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it, which is no problem. Remember, they were all divided over Apollos and Paul and Peter. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter. The, the foundation is what matters. We need to build on that foundation. Let each one take care how he builds on it, upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation is Christ. We are then to constantly build upon that foundation as we do whatever we do. God's made us fellow workers. He's made us into a, a field, a building. No escaping the design identity for the local church and the collective body of Christ. Christ is the foundation and he is to be put forth. Earlier, I referred to a verse I want to say to you once more. When Paul is writing to Timothy, who's starting to be a pastor at a new church, they're all new churches at this time when the New Testament is being written. And here is Timothy on his own now. And Paul writes to him and says this, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing these things so that you, if I delay, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The household of God, Paul then describes as, he says, which is the church of the living God? a pillar and buttress of the truth. And the Greek word for pillar just simply means something that supports. So the truth is Christ, and we support the truth, we uphold the truth, we put the truth in a place that people can see it. Now, what I want to do is look at these last three points that I give to you as a way of thinking about how this must look as a priority. I confess it's just my observation, but it seems that the order of how we tell the truth or bring the truth makes a difference with the effect of it. No one should ever deny we have to speak the truth when something is said that's a lie. We, we have the truth in the word of God, so we should bring it to bear. 
But I do think it would help us as Christians if we thought of how we tell the truth, even the order of things that we are concerned with as we present the truth. So think of it in those terms. Your pastor giving you some thoughts about how we would tell the truth that we know we have to tell. There's no denial of that. It's just maybe how we tell it that might help us a bit. And I'm taking my cue now from the way I see Jesus prioritize what he tells insofar as the truth is concerned. We know that the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and also teaching whatsoever he commanded. Now, with that, I would suggest to you that the right priority for telling the truth should be look like this. First, we ought to be about telling the truth, upholding the truth, proclaiming the truth of how a person can be right with God. That's the gospel through Christ. That's got to be the first truth that we are most anxious to uphold. That if there was everything was boiled down and everything was taken away from us, we would still just be holding fast to that. Now, that hasn't happened, so we have other things we can do insofar as presenting truth. But the most important would be that the church is about presenting the gospel very clearly always. It's members, it's pulpits, in every extension of it. Secondly, to tell the truth about our common struggle with sin. What do you mean? Well, I mean to say that I think what's happened, and maybe an Americanized theology is that we present the idea that if you have problems and you come to Christ and those problems will go away or your life will polish up immediately or it won't be as tough or if you would just follow these norms your life would be better and that message which is very unique to our state of affairs and our country's theology and churches I think really denies the actual message of scripture about what happens when you become a believer it's not that at all it's a struggle sin is constantly before us. we sin we struggle with sin. We fall into sin. We are not some pristine organization, polished and, and holier than everyone else. And so we need to be clear about the truth that Christ is our Savior and the head of our church, and we are a work in progress that struggles constantly, and we're like a hospital for sinners. The gospel's there, and we come together and help each other, but it's tough, and that's really what life in Christ is. Life is difficult and miserable without Christ. It's still difficult in Christ because of remaining sin and all the pressures. We have to tell the truth about the struggle against sin that we all face. That not every marriage here looks just right. That not all of our relationships are just right. Our private lives and our thought lives are not just exactly like Jesus's. And we have to be honest about that ongoing struggle. I think that's telling the truth. Now, from a position of reliance upon Christ, because we're sinners, from that position, now we can start to approach the various issues of the day that have become culture wars. It's much easier from a position of humility with reliance upon Christ to say to our fellow citizens, the reason why this construct for marriage, your suggestion doesn't work, is that's not the design. And yes, it's tough even in the design because we're sinners. And, and fill in the blank with whatever issue that we tend to invert and put the first thing we want to fight instead of the first thing being Christ and then how we have to be conformed to Christ and how we have to recognize our ongoing fight against sin now, from that position, I think we have a much better way about confronting whatever the culture is confronting. If, if you have that person who's so humble in their estate, you are much more apt to listen to what they have to say than the confident person who's haranguing over you about how bad you are. In the church, if we would be about upholding the truth of Christ in the gospel first, the truth of our fight against sin, then I think we'd have a much better place to absolutely confront the issues that have to be confronted and are tearing apart our culture and our world and our country. Tell the truth about how to be right with God first. Christ is the truth. He's the main truth the church has been given to propagate. Bringing the message of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that's priority number one. When people come to Christ, 
they are transformed. And yes, the struggle against sin is real, but transformation is also real. And there's victory that's won. And that starts to have an impact. And people who are caught and enslaved in sin and can't get out of it in any way, they see that transformation. And God uses that transformation with his word and his spirit to bring them to Christ. And then that's how church, the church becomes that salt that's so effective. You know, the New Testament and all the morals and all the things it tells us to do, it's written to the people of God. Because you need the spirit of God to be able to do any of these things. And so we should not be surprised when people who are unbelievers act like unbelievers. Our goal should be to see them become believers as we present Christ. Tell the truth about our common struggle with sin. I think that is a big misconception, don't you? Believers will, new believers will think that, wow, my, they've come to Christ authentically through some crisis in their life. And they think, well, now that that crisis has been averted or been met by Christ, I won't have any other crises. That's not the case at all. We know that. We could just read into Paul's writing when he says in Romans 7, you know, I know what's true and what I should be doing, but I can't do it. I keep doing the thing I don't want to do. And he, as an apostle, displays somebody who struggles against sin. That's the real Christian life. What it causes us to do is constantly go back to the gospel that saved us for the same strength we need. Christians would be, if we would be more truthful about our daily need for God's grace, I think we would be humbler people and we would come across in a different way than we often come across when we confront things that have to be confronted. There still will be people who will not believe. Understood. But I think our impact overall would be greater if we came from a position of humility and dependence upon Christ in honesty about who we are than when we come as though we've got it all together and you're really wrong. First, we have to be about bringing this truth about Christ. Second, we have to maintain that humble posture. But we also have to. We have to speak up. We have to speak God's truth. We have to acknowledge when things are wrong in the place that God has placed us as a church, we have to say what the word of God says. We have to be clear and uncompromising about that. Gone are the days where there's this majority consensus that generally comes up with godly ideas or quasi-godly ideas. Those days are gone. So it requires people in the church to be all the more active in promoting those things that are godly. They have to be in this order I'm, I'm displaying, or I don't think it'll have the effect that we would like it to have. But we have to speak what is true. We have to say what God says. Because whether people appreciate it or not, there's a restraining of evil that God has through his presence of the church in a place that benefits everybody. It holds back. You think it's bad. It'd be way worse if there were no church here. In fact, go to places in the world right now where there is a very small, small representation of the church or no representation, and you will see all manner of evil and wickedness like you can't imagine because there isn't that presence there that is witnessing to the truth in a way that God uses to restrain ultimate evil that could come upon. So it's almost like we're bad citizens as Christians if we don't speak the truth about what God has displayed against the things that happen. This is why Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount about kingdom living, basically, in a fallen world, you might say. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking to Christians. If the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It's good for nothing at that point. It's thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The reason why churches die, usually, is because they stop being salt. There may be other reasons, but generally speaking, when you see huge churches that were big at one time and vibrant and now they start dwindling, it's almost always related to a sellout of truth. 
lots to think about when you think about bringing truth. I hope that I've shown you a way of thinking maybe about how we bring the truth. Because Jesus says to us once again in John seventeen eighteen, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Do a perusal, an analysis, a survey of Jesus's life and look at how he prioritized these things. And I think you'll find he was about bringing himself to the situation to give himself for people, to show compassion to those people, to constantly bring truth to bear against the errors and the lies they're confronted with. And finally, next week, we'll look at how he also brought a peace because he came and because those who received him received abundant life, they had a sense in which no matter what happened, there was a contentment or a peace or a a settledness about God's control over the matter. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is not just about stopping wars between people. It's also about a sense of peace a person can have this side of heaven, even when rough stuff happens to them. Let's pray. Lord God, you have made your church on earth, which part of which is gathered here this morning to worship you. You've made us a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We confess a lack of natural wisdom about how we are to live, how we're supposed to show this identity. We, we confess we need constant ministry of the spirit to help us apply this it seems in some ways easy to talk and theorize so much more difficult to walk out and live it we want to bring truth to a world enslaved by lies we want to bring christ to all people we want to see a constant honesty about our only sufficiency who is christ we want to see the beauty of your holiness displayed in the lives of people who have been transformed by your truth yes jesus you are the truth you were sent by the Father, and you have sent us. Please give us humility, give us faithfulness, give us courage, and give us strength to bring the truth to the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.